As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, I feel like there are some episodes of this where, like, where I, well, there are some episodes of our podcast where I think, like, okay, this is a Tracy podcast. I'm probably mostly just going to sit back and listen. And anytime I feel like we're going to have a conversation that involves the term Delta hedging, which I'm still, like, kind of, like, have a totally, like, lockdown solid on what that means. I'm like, okay, this is, like, this is, like, a Tracy episode. Okay, first of all, that's very sweet of you to say. Second of all, <laughs> I just told you that I lost all my notes for this episode. So now I feel like the stakes are very high and, uh, you know, I, I might not do as good a job as you expect. But yeah, we're going to be diving into Delta hedging. But the weird thing is that that Delta hedging has kind of exploded into the public uh, consciousness for for, I think, the first time in a while, or at least everyone in the market is talking about it because we have this big drama in options. Yeah, that's exactly right. So basically, I mean, one of the most surprising things uh, in this crisis period, and we've talked about this a few times, is the degree to which retail traders have really aggressively jumped into this market, timing the market really well, jumping in right at the bottom. We sort of know about the mania, but what's interesting too is um, sort of the option strategies, not just sort of like buying Tesla or buying uh, Amazon or buying Netflix, uh, but actually like trading aggressively with options. And the use of options has all kinds of interesting sort of like market structure ramifications. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the big developments that we've discussed on the podcast is the rise of Robin Hood and, um, you know, Reddit yeah. forums like Wall Street Bets. And instead of just buying stocks and profiting as the shares go up, a lot of people are undertaking um, equity derivative strategies, call options to get leverage uh, on their trades. And some of them seem to be making big money. But the major question for markets right now is whether or not all that options activity, that rising options activity actually has an impact on the underlying stock. Yes. So that's the big question. There's one other bit of drama um, that we haven't mentioned yet, and that is SoftBank. So, you know, SoftBank is a Japanese conglomerate, a big tech investor, and it emerged relatively recently that they had been uh, buying call options as well, although I, I think there are varying reports about what exactly 
they're doing, some people are describing them as the whale in the options market, the implication being that they're moving prices in some way. Again, there's a lot of debate about how much influence they actually have. We're going to be getting into all of that on this episode. Right. Anytime SoftBank is involved with something, there's an added <laughs> level of drama because people love to people love SoftBank drama. They love the whole WeWork thing. So it's like, oh, SoftBank is doing the uh, same trade, buying a bunch of tech stocks. There's a bunch of people on Robinhood. Yeah. It's just a super uh, juicy story. SoftBank and so plus we're gonna, uh, sort it all plus out. Wall Street bets. It's kind of the perfect combo. Perfect Twitter fodder. So we're going to um, <laughs> we're going to break down what is actually going on. And we are uh, our guest today is our go to for all things volatility, all things uh, option trading. We've had him on in a couple, a uh, couple of times in the past. Um, he is uh, Ben Eifert. He is the CIO at QVR Advisors, and he has a gift for explaining this stuff in uh, plain English. So, Ben, thank you very much for joining us. What is Delta hedging again? <laughs> hey, Joe, how are you guys? Thanks for thanks for having me on. I'm excited. No, but seriously, what is it again? Delta hedging? I always forget. Absolutely. So think of it this way, right? So, you know, options are simple tools that investors of different kinds use to hedge their portfolios or to speculate in in different ways. You know, a, a call option, for example, is just a really simple instrument that gives the owner of that option, you know, the right but not the obligation to buy a stock in the future at some predetermined price, right? So a retail investor that thinks Tesla's going up, you know, could buy the the two the you know next Friday's two thousand strike Tesla call, and if Tesla goes up to you know twenty two hundred, they're going to get to buy Tesla at you know at two thousand, and it's going to be worth twenty two hundred at that point, and they might have only had to pay you know twenty five bucks or thirty bucks for that. So they, it just gives them a very simple way of expressing a, a directional view with limited loss. Now the the thing to keep in mind is. The way that this marketplace works, if that if that retail investor goes out and buys that Tesla call option, they're buying it from a market maker, and maybe that market maker uh, holds on to that position. Maybe they flip out of it to a volatility arbitrage hedge fund. But at the end of the day, the other side of that option position, you know, lives with a uh, a market participant that does not have a directional view on on the stock, right? So the retail investor isn't sort of somehow magically pairing off with some, uh, you know, in every case with some other retail investor that just has the exact opposite view and wants to sell that call, right? When the market maker sells that call option uh, to the retail investor, that call option is going to have some sensitivity to the the price of the stock. If it's out of the money, it might be say you know per contract, it might be twenty five percent as sensitive you know to, to to the stock price. In other words, if you know if a, a thousand shares worth of Tesla trade, those call options might have you know to exposure worth two hundred and fifty shares. The market maker is just going to hedge that exposure right away when they do the transaction. Right. And so if a retail investor comes and buys a bullish option structure from a market maker, uh, the market maker does executes that trade and then buys some stock on the back of that to hedge out the directionality of that of that exposure. Right, the market maker's job is to you know buy on the on the bid and sell on the offer and manage down their inventory and take as little risk as possible. And so that's the the you know the delta hedging, um, you know, just first order impact. And then the second thing to think about is that you know option delta or option exposure to the underlying stock price is itself dynamic and it depends on where the stock price is relative to the strike it depends on the time to maturity 
you know, especially for very short term options, you know, what will happen if in that example we were talking about if Tesla, you know, rallies, you know, six or seven percent the next day, which in August it was doing, you know, just on your average day, right? right? Um, that that exposure might of that option might go from a twenty five delta or you know twenty five percent you know sensitivity to the stock price to fifty percent, uh, and then the, as it gets closer to the strike, and what's going to happen then is the market maker who's holding the other side of that position is going to need to increase the size of their hedge. They're going to go need to buy more Tesla stock uh, to bring their hedge up to the you know fifty percent, um, and in doing so, you know that they'll end up having bought you know, a vast multiple as much dollars of Tesla stock as that investor will have spent on the premium of the option could be, you know, in this example, it could be 50 times as much, right? So creating a a very large amount of leverage for the end, you know, retail investor that's doing this trade. Right. I'm going to ask you that again in a year, the next time we have you on for a different topic, but that was fantastic. So, I mean, on that note, this idea of the the shorter term options, can you maybe describe or explain why they seem to have become very popular recently and um and maybe give us some color on on what people are actually doing in that market like how big are the volumes at the moment and why has everyone suddenly decided they want to trade short-term calls sure absolutely you know so this has really been uh, an evolving trend that um that it, the popularity of short-term options, you know, this is a relatively new thing in markets. If you look back, you know, five or seven years ago, a short-term option would have been considered, say, a month, you know, one-month option. And there was a little S&P weeklies were starting to be listed. You know, most single names didn't have them. Um, you know, very short-term options would have been considered, you know, very path-dependent, very risky. Uh, and you've just seen a steady, steady, rapid growth in, you know, their utilization in the listing of those options on exchanges, in single names and index, and in the, you know, relative fractions of, of volumes traded in those very short-term options. So like in the S&P, for example, you know, over the last six months, I think that, you know, the more recent data is, you know, some very large percentage of the daily volume in S&P options is in the, you know, couple of days, um, you know, expiries happening that day or the next day, like 30% or 40%. And that a similar pattern has emerged in, um, especially in uh, tech companies, in mega cap tech companies. Now, in terms of, you know, the data, what we see, right? So first of all, you and all of this is, you know, OCC, this is all exchange traded, you know, data uh, reported by the OCC. And, you know, you can look at you know, different individual transactions that happen. But so first of all, um, small trader buying of bullish call options um, has so the, so under fifty lot uh, positions. These those volumes had lived, let's say, previously a, a high rate on a trailing one month basis. In you know any time in history up until twenty twenty would have been let's say a uh, hundred billion dollars of notional trading across uh, uh, across single name options. Um, it's reached $500 billion today. It sort of went vertical, you know, rocket ship blast off starting actually in late 2019. So it preceded, it, you know, COVID really, I think, amplified this trend, but the trend started to, to take off before that. Um, and I think it's, it's partly associated with the uh, elimination of, broker, of, uh, of brokerage commissions across the majority of the large retail platforms. Uh, and that, I think, you know, you can have to give Robinhood some credit for, for you know, pushing the market in that direction. Um, 
uh, and you know you can get into nuances of are the trading costs for retail investors and options actually any lower? I mean, I think most people would argue they're not, right? It's just mm. an optical thing about, right. um, oh, we're not charging you. Um, but anyway, I think that's a you know, separate discussion to some extent. You've seen this huge explosion. You know, the chart just looks insane of, again, bullish call option buying by, um, by small investors. The, the other thing that you see, you know, you can look at, Again, it's really happening in call options, not in put options. So, you know, small trader accounts are, you know, trading somewhat more put options than they used to, but it's very modest. Um, whereas you see this just incredible parabolic growth on the on the call option side. Uh, the the other thing to note is that, uh, especially the last few months, uh, this is flow is very heavily concentrated in uh, mega cap tech. Um, there have been a, a few different adventures that uh, that retail has had over the last six months. I mean, if you remember in the wake of COVID, actually, there were some large position taking in, you know, bankrupt companies and in cruise <laughs> ships and airlines and some of yeah. the most like distressed value uh, value names. But really, for the last you know, three or four months, it's been very heavily a story about mega cap tech. So if you look at Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, Tesla, you know, rolling one month average daily single stock call volumes are are around two hundred billion dollars a day, um, which you know would have that would have number would have been like a hundred and would have been like uh, sorry like fifteen million dollars wow. you know twenty million dollars pre before in in you know over a long history of time. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So uh, I'm looking, you sent over some charts. And as you mentioned, you know, we sort of associate this mania with the COVID and sort of post-COVID era. But it really has been going on for a while. And you could see it really pick up in 2018, 2019. And it was the cover of that sort of infamous Business Week uh, story that our you know departed colleague uh, Luke Cowell wrote. Like this was like, the Wall Street bet strategy, essentially this idea like these little, you know, little retail traders thought they sort of created a perpetual money machine, buy these call options, bullish, force the brokers to delta hedge, take positions with this idea that you could just sort of like snowball it into more money. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, that was some some really you know great reporting that Luke did. Uh, you know, it's an interesting community. Uh, I think the Reddit Wall Street Bets community obviously is a, it's a microcosm of the broader right you know retail investment community. And, probably and Robinhood kind of, itself is also a microcosm because we talk about Robinhood right. as kind of like Band Aid or Kleenex, but it represents in the sort of lexicon what a lot of people are doing on a lot of different platforms. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's an important point. You'll hear a lot of people you know, who aren't necessarily that close to option markets be sort of dismissive that retail activity could be large or could be impactful. And they say, look, Robinhood yeah. is not that big. But yeah, I think a lot of times when people are are casually talking about um, the types of things that Robinhood is doing, um, you know, you have to look 
at this kind of data across all of the major retail brokerages. And you see exactly the same pattern everywhere, sort of these huge explosive growth at you know, Schwab, at TD, at interactive brokers. This is not, it's not purely a Robinhood phenomenon. Robinhood's just the most colorful and right. you know, makes the news the most, right? And, that, and to your point, you know, the Reddit Wall Street Bets community, you know, this is a, it's an odd subculture, right? Sort of an, an internet-like subculture that I think had a lot of, has a lot in common with the crypto community and probably shares a lot of the same, you know, people who were, mm-hmm. who were very active in crypto, like in 2017, right? Uh, it's a very, you know, lewd talking crew on the, on the discord. You can go and, you know, sit in the discord and watch what these guys are talking about and what they're doing. And, you know, to, to be, uh, to be clear, you know, there are, you know, influencers within that community that will say, all right, we're, you know, this week, you know, today we're buying the Tesla 2,500 calls for next Friday. And like, you know, the volumes that will print are huge, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily from any one account, but there's you know, a couple million members in that chat. And if, you know, if, if 10% of them go and buy a couple of contracts of Tesla, that volume is astronomical, right? And the market may, you better believe that the most sophisticated option players in the world and the Susquehannas and Citadel securities is, are extremely focused on this flow and then predicting it in real time and all of the technology that you would associate with that, right? It's, it's monster, monster flow. That's really interesting. And to your point, these guys know about this effect. It's, right. it's really fascinating, right? But uh, Joe, Joe kind of mentioned it, as Luke said, you know, the, these guys will, will be the first ones to say, look, if we buy tons of short-dated weekly calls, here's how gamma works. Um, here's how we put market makers into this negative convexity situation where if stocks are trending higher, they're forced to buy. And like that is, a, you know, that benefits us. They get that. You got to think that there must be some like regulators from the SEC also keeping an eye on Wall Street bets at the moment, although in the discord. Yeah, exactly. But that's kind of a separate topic. Uh, so, OK, here's the big the big question, then. What is your sense of how much impact these uh, these traders are actually having on the overall market and especially the mega cap tech stocks that have been in focus recently? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the way you have to think about this as this kind of option positioning, um, what it does is it it you know creates feedback mechanisms for trend amplification in markets, right? So it's not. I think the argument is not that um, necessarily even across you know the 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 option trading community within retail that. Uh, you know, there's the amount of dollars of stock exposure that they're buying directly is like, you know, so large that they're pushing everything up, right? But there's a general, you know, there's been a general move back into tech across both institutional and retail, right? It's certainly not limited to to retail. And the uh, and the nature of very heavy buying of short-term options by, you know, by retail and big size, you know, creates an amplification mechanism in the direction of a trend. And that could be up or down, right? Because the important thing about you know, about Delta hedging and, you know, to, to Joe's question, again, let's take that example of those, um, of those call Tesla call options that had been heavily bought and that, that the Delta started out, you know, at 25%. And then as Tesla rallied, that Delta went to 50% and to 75%, forcing the market maker on the other side to buy stock and buy stock and buy stock and amplifying that trend. You know, what happens if then the next day, you know, there's, more sellers than buyers for whatever reason, right? Some large institutions are selling or whatever, right? And Tesla comes off five or 10%. These are very short-term options, right? And so suddenly the, the 75% delta of those options goes back to 50 and back to 25 and dealers have to sell out all of those hedges that they had, right? 
So the impact is not just a direct bullish impact. It's an impact that amplifies price action in either direction. Right. And I think, you, you know, you saw that at work this last, uh, you know, this last week, right, where you had the, the rally kind of peter out, you saw very heavy institutional selling coming in on Wednesday, uh, you know, the last day of the rally, and then Thursday, the first day of the big sell off. And, you know, then you saw the most wicked reversals in, you know, the most popular mega cap tech names that where that really were amplified throughout the day and into the close. So, you know, it, it's very hard, obviously, to, to give some kind of percent, you know, X percentage of the you know tech rally from the state to the state was somehow caused by you know retail option buying. I think that's an impossible sort of question. But what I think is very clear is there's very is there's you know strong mo- near term momentum trend effects that amplify that rally um, that come from from uh, from retail positioning and options. So let's get into the SoftBank angle of the story because actually Bloomberg reported in early August that SoftBank planned to participate in public markets, particularly big tech companies. Then uh, in early September, uh, the FT had a story and they said SoftBank is the uh, the NASDAQ whale. So how much of a whale are they? And put into perspective how much they're doing versus all this retail money and are they sort of leading the charge? Is it a drop in the bucket? Like, how do they fit in, in your view overall? Sure. So, you know, to your point, everybody likes to talk about SoftBank because, yeah. you know, it's such a colorful company and, you know, the, the personalities involved are, are very big in the WeWork story. Yeah, I think we have to put this in perspective, right? So, so first of all, um, I think Bloomberg reported in early, maybe it was August 10th or 11th, about some of the equity positions that SoftBank had been building in mega cap tech names. I think those were reported at around $10 billion order yeah. of magnitude, right? Buying $10 billion of stock in the biggest, most liquid mega cap tech companies in the world that have trillions of dollars of market cap over two months is zero. Full stop, right? Has no impact on anything. That's a tiny position from the perspective, not you know, not for a single institution, but a tiny, a tiny from the perspective of volumes or, or or market caps, right? No, no impact. You know, a lot of the uh, the later activity that became interesting, right? So, you know, option market makers and option market participants had been following, you know, this kind of new, interesting, relatively large flow that started in early August in um, call spread buying for equity replacement purposes. Um, And, you know, just to give some example, and again, this is all people kind of have strange ideas about like, how do you see this happening? Or how do you know where this is all this is all exchange traded securities, you know, it's large institutions, quote, banks execute trades, everybody hears about it in real time, not who the source is, right? Not that it's SoftBank, but you and then you see the trades go up on the exchange, you know, but these were large trades. So like, on, on August 5th, you started to see, for example, you know, Facebook, November 2020, 250, 275 call spread traded and, you know, 35,000 lots, which is pretty big. And, you know, Microsoft, the 220, 240 call spread went up 75,000 times, right? So everybody's going to talk about this and say, oh, that's interesting. What's going on? These trades were executed delta neutral, which means that the client was buying a call spread at the time. This would have been a, you know, three month or so call spread. And it was our three and a half months and uh, executed versus selling stock. So with no net directional impact on the market, right? This was a, an equity replacement trade. So mm-hmm. reducing an, a long equity position and replacing it with some options and in particular with some call spreads. Now this is, so first of all, this is a three month call spread trade, a couple of three month call spread trades. I gave you an example of, right? So three month call spreads, how, you know, if you want to think about how much, convexity or how much gamma 
that induces this kind of dynamic delta hedging impact that we were talking about. Does a three-month call spread trade have, you know, compared to like a one-week, a little bit upside yeah. call, for example? You know, it, it would be, uh, again, depending on the details, it could be 100 times less per dollar of notional, or it could be 200 times less, right? So a, a three-month call spread is not a, uh, a, con- a, a convex security. And as markets rally, it loses what little convexity that it has very quickly, right? This is just the, the objective of this kind of trade, you know, from the end client's perspective who already owns the stock. This is just a risk reduction trade, right? Where they're taking some stock off of the table. They're replacing it with an option structure that's maybe worth three or 4% of notional, where if the world falls apart and these stocks go down a ton, they only lose that three or 4% instead of losing, you know, 20% or 30% on their stocks, right? So this is like very normal, very boring, except, you know, decent sized, uh, which is the only reason that options people were talking about them, um, you know, transactions in the market, no, you know, that don't have any of the types of impacts that we were talking about with respect to, to, to gamma. You know, they do have some, they're longer term, they have some big exposure or exposure to implied volatility. And those exposures got decent sized. Um, and, you know, there's some argument that these, the trades like this contributed to some of the market up but implied volatility up dynamics that we saw in late August. And you know, you can you can argue about that. But I think there's there's absolutely no case that there would have been any meaningful impact on stock prices or on you know acceleration of stock price moves from this kind of flow. You know, and later we learned that you know SoftBank was probably involved in some of this. There may have been some other copycat flow. Um, but again, I think this was, you know, way overblown in terms of of being impactful with respect to you know the Nasdaq. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so because they're trading three-month call spreads, it doesn't have the same effect um, on markets as the short-term call trading does. I guess my question, and also you describe the call spread strategy as basically risk mitigation for their tech bets. Mm -hmm. But I guess, could I just ask, how weird is it that SoftBank, you know, this big tech investor that normally does a sort of venture capital like business, how weird is it that they're just investing in the public markets like this? And who's doing, who, who do you think is like in charge of their overall risk strategy on these type of trades? 
I, I mean, it's a, it's certainly a bit unusual from from their historical perspective, but I think SoftBank also is a bit of an enigma, and you know, <laughs> tend, tends to do new, interesting things that you know surprise people and, and get people excited along a, a variety of dimensions. You know, they sort of tried to play this down as sort of liquid treasury functions almost, right? Oh, we have a bunch of extra cash and like, why not, you know, do something really simple with it? You know, normally you wouldn't think of buying tech stocks as, as a treasury function. But, um, you know, again, I think that it's relative, if you think of the risk that they take in private markets investing, uh, you know, investing $10 billion in some mega cap tech companies is obviously a whole lot less risky than putting $10 billion into a WeWork or, or something like that. So it's it's certainly a, a different style of, of thing. Um, but is it like some totally crazy thing to do? I, I mean, uh, I don't know. I have a quick question. It's not quite related to this specific incident, but you mentioned the sort of the coordination that goes on in the Discord chats, all these small traders. How different is this in terms of its market impact from the days, say, 20 years ago or something, when a handful of macro fund managers like, you know, the Soros's and Druckenmiller's really like would have been the big players in some of these markets and the degree to which they could generate alpha by essentially, you know, play, moving the market due to their weight? I mean, that's a, a great question. It's it's obviously a very different flavor, kind of a few concentrated large right. investors, um, you know, versus a, a huge herd of smaller ones that do effectively rely on, you know, not just their own, you know, uh, not just their own money to move markets, but kind of putting some of the conditions in place to amplify, you know, trends and so forth. But I mean, first, it's a lot more diversified, but, you know, technology has really enabled large scale coordination, right? Um, and and you see then that's not just a finance phenomenon. I mean, that's a social media phenomenon. And, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, you know, you have to think of Reddit, Wall Street bets as, as more of a product of kind of the Internet and social media culture yeah. than of finance specifically. Right. It's manifesting itself, you know, now in, in trading and finance, you know, but it's really this you know technology enabled rapid coordination function where an influencer can be followed by millions of people and can say, OK, let's do this and actually get a lot of people to do things in real time. Uh, it's, you know, whereas in the 90s, you know, again, you had you did actually have quite a lot. The 90s really were the last you know, heyday of retail option trading. Um, it would have been, uh, I think, still a much back in the 90s, you think of who were, um, you know, what kinds of people were like really active trading options in their new E-Trade accounts and things like that, right? It was, you know, lawyers and doctors and dentists and people who were kind of at the forefront of uh, technology at the time and getting interested in markets and had some money to play with. Uh, whereas I think, you know, now when you look at, you know, the, the breadth of a community like Red or Wall Street bets, you know, you have, uh, you have a, a huge variety of different folks, some with, you know, meaningful bankrolls and some with pretty, you know, some with just a little bit of money um, or some who started out with 10,000 bucks and then now it was 200,000 and then it went to zero. And, yeah. uh, you know, the last week, I mean, one crazy thing about Wall Street bets, it's a very gamified uh, aggressive risk-taking culture, right? And there's lots of posting of PL screenshots and the amount of, the amount of like, Posting a screenshot of your five hundred thousand dollar account that just went to zero last, you know, last last Friday, um, and then like, you know, laughing about that is yeah. is pretty shocking. This was going to be my next question: this gamification of trading idea, and you mentioned earlier the overlap of Bitcoin traders or cryptocurrency traders with Wall Street bets. It it does seem like 
the way they're trading and the things that they're investing in are just sort of much more exciting than traditional, you know, buy and hold for the long term investing. Is that going to be the new normal? Like, are we ever going to go back to a time where call options um, aren't as popular as they are now? I, I think we probably will, right? You generally speaking, the way that I think you have to expect these kind of uh, these kind of trends to end is with you know lar- very large losses among you know the segment of people that are that are very heavily involved, right? This is extraordinarily risky speculation, um, where you know can, I think you know when a when a hedge fund when a volatility and derivatives hedge fund thinks about how to quantify risk and how to measure how much risk you're taking in the portfolio. You know, obviously we think about uh, uh, how risky a short-term option is and the fact that, you know, if you're buying a, a one-week call, upside call option on Tesla, uh, if it just doesn't go up 10%, you're just going to lose all your money. And, and so, so you would size a variety of bets accordingly, right? Versus the gamified risk-taking culture you see in, in Reddit Wall Street bets being... Uh, you know, people say, well, I have $100,000 in my brokerage account. What's interesting to do today? Well, it's buying those Tesla calls. So I'll put that $100,000 into one week Tesla calls, right? Of course, what happens then is just you lose, just lose all the money when kind of the uh, the huge upside move move stops, right? So generally over risk taking in complex instruments that are, you know, uh, like this, you know, just lead, I think the end game is a lot of people losing a lot of money and stop uh, and generally stopping doing this kind of this kind of thing but uh, you know it can last for a while because you have when you have these violent you know rallies that just keep going people can buy lottery tickets over and over and over again and win you know three times out of four uh, and keep playing is there a way with the data so you know just going back to the original formulation of this okay aggressive call buying and then the uh, the dealers have to sort of uh, hedge their exposure. And so, you know, then they have to uh, buy stock. Is there a way to get a feel in the data for the sort of the community of dealers overall, the degree to which at any given moment, the degree and volume to which they'll have to jump in? So let's mm-hmm. say, OK, I don't know, Tesla's up again today. So Tesla, I think, is up like 5% as we're uh, speaking. Is there a way to know sort of in real time or roughly real time what that translates into in terms of forced buying or forced hedging, given what we given the sort of constellation of outstanding options there are? Joe, that's a very good question. You downplay. I don't know anything about this delta hedging stuff. And then you ask a very good question like that. So, I mean, so no is too strong of a word, but you can certainly attempt to model or estimate that dynamic, right? And, and you know, you, you wouldn't be surprised that, you know, folks like us spend a decent amount of time on that. But, you know, think of it as, you know, you have to observe all of the trades that happen in the marketplace. You have to have an educated way of modeling or guessing, um, is this a trade that was um, a, a customer purchase of an option from a, you know, dealer or dynamic hedger? With what probability do you think that that's true? Uh, you know, building up your kind of simulated portfolio that you think that dealers hold and volatility arbitrage managers hold versus end customers who aren't delta hedging. And you have to make, you know, a variety of assumptions and you have to, right, it's a, it's a modeled exercise and you have a probability distribution around it, but then you can end up with, okay, here's, you know, sort of how much dollar, ga- here's how we think the gamma profile of, uh, of dynamic hedgers, dealers and market makers and ball arbs in a particular stock is at a particular time and how that changes as the, as the underlying spot price moves. Um, and, you know, generally, 
you know, I think before this huge retail um, euphoria of the last six months, you know, a lot of that effort we would focus on, you know, looking at the S&P 500 because actually gamma positioning of dealers in, you know, the mega cap index was a huge and very important phenomenon, you know, driven by institutional, um, largely call selling and put selling. Um, but now, uh, but now, actually, much of the new trend is is single name uh, gamma positioning, uh, driven again by these very short term retail flows. So we talk a lot about the idea of the options traders having an impact on the market through delta hedging and the dynamics at the dealers themselves. Is is there a scenario in which the dealers can have a sort of impact? Like, is there a scenario in which it can reverse? Can something happen at the dealers so that they become caught offside in the market or they end up taking a position in the market, which they hadn't intended to. And that affects the underlying and then it sort of ruins um, Wall Street bets trades. I think that, you know, ultimately, you know, there's a there's a price for everything, right? Oh, some of the early, um, I think there were examples of dealers and market makers, you know, losing a material amount of money on some of the early growth in uh, in this, you know, speculative retail flow and options, because, you know, typically as a dealer that has experience over the last 10 or 20 years, you know, you see significant retail flow emerging in some stock um, in the options on that stock, you know, you view that as uninformed flow that's kind of paying the offer side, and you're really happy to take a big position, you know, facing those folks earning a lot of bid offer and, you know, not too worried that they sort of know something, right? Um, and then what you saw, like in Tesla early, you know, much earlier this year, right, was that flow coming and coming and coming in huge size and pushing the stock and pushing the stock and huge realized volatility. And you actually saw some of the market makers lose a material amount of money on that. Um, and I think, you know, over over time you saw, but what you saw is, first of all, implied volatility is moving much higher in those in those names, right? So, you know, dealers charging a much higher price to facilitate that flow. And then, you know, a, a deployment of a variety of techniques and, you know, hedging techniques to try to, you know, better protect themselves. So, you know, think of, think of you know, accumulation of inventory in anticipation of, of future customer flow is a polite mm-hmm. word, um, you know, and leaning extra long in the stock in anticipation of how things are moving. And, you know, so at some point, you, you know, you saw test, short-term Tesla options trading at 120 implied ball or 140 implied ball, right? So, you know, the market re-equilibrates itself to the point where dealers and, and uh, people who are short those options, you know, can make money on the positions because that's sort of how supply and demand works, right? So I think, you know, are there, are there you know, de- dealers know what they're doing. And, and the, I think the, with these kind of products, it's not too likely that there's going to be like catastrophic losses at, you know, JP Morgan or something that are going to shut down, you know, realistic capacity of, of option market makers to, to, to support this. I just have one more question. So, you know, basic ideas, you know, buying a call, it's inherently levered. You put up a little bit of money, you can either make a lot, but if you don't, you know, it doesn't go in the money, you lose everything. And so it's a it's a leveraged bet. And when the market, you know, crashed in February and March, and I thought back to that Luke article, I was like, well, that was the top and they're all finished. You know, all these leveraged long call buyers, they're gone. And then it's like, no, they like immediately, they didn't waste any time coming back. And that that article did not turn out to be the top. But are you surprised that that the speed and intensity of that washout didn't just sort of like obliterate that community and that, are you know, are you surprised at how quickly they regrouped and got back in the game? Or were you surprised at the time? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was to some extent. I, I definitely, you know, you would have typically thought if you have a, a big emergence of a lot of speculation and then you have a huge market sell-off and people get burned and then they kind of yeah. you know, take their ball and go home, right? I mean, I think uh, part of it is, I think the size of that community has been expanding steadily, right? So it's, um, you know, new entrance to the, to yeah. the space. Um, and that was amplified by, uh, by COVID and lockdown and the fact that all of a sudden you sent a ton of people home to work on their computers at home with nobody staring over their, over their back and their board, right? Um, you know, an- anecdotally, and I'm, I think everybody has these anecdotes, right? But cousins and uncles and everybody in the back office at, at, at the banks that you know, you know, all are like opening Robinhood accounts or yeah, yeah. You know, again, Robinhood uh, uh, using that term very broadly, sure. opening brokerage accounts and asking about options trading and asking how to do things. And so I think that a lot of new mar- new participants have been, you know, brought in. And, um, you know, the other thing, you know, some of these folks, again, are small scale guys who scrape together or girls who scrape together five or 10 grand and, you know, trying to get into this stuff, you know, but there's plenty of associates at law firms and investment banking analysts right. and, you know, people who have money to burn and who have incomes and who aren't out spending them in on drinks and bars in Manhattan. They got to find some other form of entertainment. And this is what they're doing. Right. And so uh, it's it's a, it is an impressive phenomenon. It's impressive how fast it, it resurged after yeah. after March and how it's accelerated to much bigger scale even even since then. Uh, ben, that was great. You know, I said in the beginning, you have a, a knack or a gift for explaining complex stuff in clear English. And I think you really delivered. That was super helpful and uh, really appreciate you joining us. Cool. Thanks, guys. A lot of fun, as always. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. Tracy, I think I'm actually going to remember what delta hedging is now. No, you're not. You're totally not. No, I think I will. I think I will. Next time there's like a big option story and we get Ben back on the podcast to explain what's going on. I actually don't think I think this time I'll really internalize like what it means. I think I'm confident in myself. Okay. Um, I was just thinking on that gamification point, like I know Ben said he thinks there's a point at, at which things will kind of return to normal, but I I don't know. I kind of wonder if you can put the excitement genie back in the bottle, right? Like once you've traded something like crypto or once you've made a bunch of money yeah. on a on a really leveraged trade that you didn't pay anything for on, on Robinhood. I, I don't know. Like, I, I think it might be hard to go back. Like, it has become a form of entertainment and not necessarily just a way of making money. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I mean, look, if we had like some huge, massive, sustained market sell off, if we hadn't gotten this rebound, if markets had kept going lower in March, if uh, the unemployment rate um, just continued to worsen, then probably that would really ice this for a while. But of course, we have seen a rebound in a lot of different measures, both market and real economy. So, you know, I think the broad thing is, and this is something that we've talked about in other um, avenues, is like so many aspects of this crisis have just accelerated pre-existing trends. And the chart of this sort of retail options trading leading into this is just another example of it. It was picking up pretty strongly in 27, 2018, and 2019. And then it just uh, went insane over the last six yeah. months. Yeah. And I guess my other big question on all of this is what regulators are going to do, if anything, like clearly this behavior is having an impact on the market. 
you can't really argue that it's insider trading because all the people on Wall Street bets, you know, presumably don't have any insider knowledge. They're just saying, let's all buy this at this particular time. But it's still sort of a, a... I don't know. It's it's coordinated in a way that I would think um, mm-hmm. catches someone's eye. Yeah, no, it's super uh, interesting. Also, just going back to the key point, um, you know, it seemed like Ben was pretty dismissive of the SoftBank whale theory. I mean, it's a, sort of like an interesting SoftBank story because SoftBank always seems to be riding whatever wave is going on at the moment and riding mm-hmm. the waves up and riding the waves down. But, uh, you know, it's obviously in terms of what we've seen since March, uh, a much bigger uh, story than just the by long shot. Yeah, I think I think the narrative around SoftBank that they hired a bunch of people from Deutsche Bank who are now putting on these riskered levered trades is a really difficult one to fight against. But Ben's description of call spreads as a risk mitigation strategy rather than an outright bet, I I think, was an interesting one. So we'll we'll see if that catches on, but somehow I doubt it. We'll see. Well, should we leave it there? Yeah, okay. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And be sure to follow our guest on Twitter, Ben Eifert. It's Ben with two N's, P. Eifert, absolute must follow. Great on all of this stuff if you're interested. Follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.